Heavenly Father, we, have been, we are gathered here together in anticipation that you will speak to us once again. Uh, we have opened our Bibles um, to Romans chapter 9, and Lord, we ask that you will make this text clear for us. Uh, Lord, uh, we don't want to approach this book like any other textbook, thinking that we are capable in and of ourselves uh, with our human wisdom to understand the things that you have revealed to us, because your word itself says that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so, therefore, we come before you this morning asking for your Holy Spirit, asking that you will give us a spiritual mind to discern spiritual things. Help us, Lord, to understand what you desire to teach in the book of Romans and specifically now through chapter 9. We ask for your blessing and for your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a little bit of background before we dive into Romans chapter 9. Um, we've already uh, mentioned it a couple of times here during the weekend that this is a special year. It's a, a commemoration of uh, the Reformation. Uh, 500 years ago was, was in many ways the beginnings of this Reformation. Uh, and, and here we are in 2017 thinking back on uh, what has happened uh, through uh, the Reformation. Now, within the Reformation movement, there were really two streams, two streams of the Reformation. Uh, the one uh, we can refer to as the uh, Magisterial Reformation, and I'll explain a little bit uh, in a moment what that means. And the other stream of the Reformation we can refer to as the Radical Reformation. Now, the Magisterial Reformation were re reformers like Martin Luther and uh, Swingley and Calvin. And what they believed is they, they saw teachings from God's Word that had been in darkness for a long time. And so, especially like Martin Luther, he stood up and he uh, preached and wrote about righteousness by faith and, and, and many other subjects. But um, as these reformers um, uh, got a foothold in Europe, and, and as people started adhering to their teachings, they were still of the opinion that the state could, to a certain degree, control what people believed or did not believe. Now, this, was, this had been a problem throughout the centuries of the Dark Ages, that with popery, it was such that the Pope was not just a religious authority, but he was also a stately authority. And um, the state was in many ways opposing and persecuting those that believed differently than Rome. Sadly, as the Reformation broke out in Europe, some of these traditional way of thinking that state and church would be to, to, to be united still existed among some of these reformers. Like if you look at, if you study the life of uh, John Calvin, which was very, um, he ministered for a long time in the city of Geneva in Switzerland, he sought to create there, in a sense, a church state, where the state still had control and was cooperating, united with the church. Um, on the other hand, you have what we could refer to as the Radical Reformation, where there were movements and voices within Europe that said, no, we need a separation between church and state. And this later really got traction when um, the pilgrims and, uh, and such, the Puritans and others, moved to the United States, and they established what we now know as the Bill of Rights, where church and state is no longer one. Uh, everyone has the freedom of conscience to decide who they are going to worship. 
Uh, but interestingly enough, you see these two streams of the Reformation. Now, those that were adhering to what we could call the Magnisterial Reformation also were very strong on the teaching of predestination, sometimes also referred to as double predestination. Now, what is predestination or double predestination? Predestination is basically saying that God, as his first attribute of his character, he is sovereign. Now, that's a biblical teaching that God is sovereign, but in the uh, teaching of predestination, the sovereignty of God basically um, uh, overrules everything else about his character. And it basically says that God is sovereign and God determines everything before it happens, also regarding those that are going to be saved and those that are going to be lost. That's why they refer to it as double predestination, because he doesn't just predestine those that are going to be saved, but if he predestines that, then he also must predestine those that are going to be lost, so double predestination. Uh, then you have those on, uh, in the Radical Reformation movement that looked at that and said, uh, no, we see from Scripture, yes, God is sovereign, but God has given us a free will. Um, God um, uh, moves as, as we make a decision for Him. Righteousness by faith, in essence, is really a choice. God has presented to us His love. He has presented to us His gospel, but He is waiting for us to, to decide. And based on our choice, uh, will be also the outcome of our destiny. Uh, quite a uh, debate um, emerged between these two streams of the Reformation. Um, actually, also li a little bit interesting to note is that those that were part of the Radical Reformation also adhere to the belief, which is actually a natural outgrowth of these two theologies, they adhere to the belief that a person should be baptized when they come to the age where they can actually make a decision for themselves regarding if they want to follow Jesus or not, which I find very interesting because that's actually a logical outgrowth of a belief of free will because in the predestination movement, it was still the, the baptism of babies. So, you know, they're, they're, they're baptized right away as a baby and they are already part of the church. That's no decision that they've made of their own. They're basically predestined by their parents' choice. Uh, but here we have in the, in the Radical Reformation movement, among others, you have the Anabaptists that said, no, there's a free will, and therefore people can, must make their own decision, and baptism must happen at an age where a, 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 a rational decision can be made by the individual himself. Something else interesting that among the Radical Reformation movement was this idea of the separation between church and state. Again, that fits very well with an under uh, a, a foundational belief of free will. Because if you believe that there's free will, then you, then you cannot adhere to the fact that a state would control the conscience. So you see how a theology builds out of this very basic idea, either of predestination, the stream of the Reformation, or radical reformation. And, and the, the reason why it's referred to as a radical reformation is basically they took it a step further. They wanted a, a further separation from Rome and its erroneous uh, traditions and ideas. Now, those that belong to the magisterial reformation, well, we have uh, uh, Swingley, Calvin, Martin Luther also believed in, in predestination. These were great men that did a lot of good things Ella White refers to them as, to them as bright, bright, shining lights in their time. 
But it's also very clear, if you read the book of the, the Great Controversy, that she alludes to the fact that they also all only came to a certain point, that the Reformation was to continue. They had not seen yet everything. They had come out of this dark, thick, uh, anti-Christ antichrist, um, period of uh, the Dark Ages. It's like going through a, a long, dark tunnel, and eventually they're getting into the light, but it was going to take some time for, for, for this uh, biblical teaching to again um, come onto the scene fully. And uh, therefore, the Reformation had to continue. And um, it's interesting um, that the debate also continued as the Reformation continued. And uh, one of the main proponents of predestination would be John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin was born in the year uh, 1509 in France, but he ministered for most of his life in Geneva, Switzerland. And he wrote extensively on the subject of God's sovereignty and predestination. So basically saying that nothing happens outside of God's providence, and he held to also the views of double predestination. Now, those that believed more in the, in, or, or in the free will, um, among others, was Jacobus Arminius. And this is why the belief of free will is often referred to as Arminianism. Arminianism. And um, Jacob, Arminia, uh, um, Jacob Arminius, uh, he lived from 1560 to 1609. And interestingly enough, uh, he was Dutch. He was a Dutch theologian. Interestingly enough, you see how out of, of, of that uh, theological stream, we, we find emerging uh, what we refer to or what we call today Methodism. Um, Methodism was very strong uh, for a, a quite a period in, in England. And one of the great preachers of the Methodist movement, does anyone know who that was? Wesley. That's right, John Wesley. And John Wesley, he preached in, uh, in England and throughout England, and um, um, he was um, preaching this, this, this theological um, uh, understanding of, of the free will. Now, out of Methodism, we could say um, Adventism uh, emerged. We, in many ways, our denomination, our movement, stands on the shoulders of Methodism. Uh, Alan White was a Methodist. James White was a Methodist. Um, actually, I looked it up on uh, Wikipedia, and um, listen to what it says regarding Arminianism. So this is, a, this is a quote from Wikipedia on Arminianism, which is interesting because it kind of traces where it came from and where it is active in which denominations today. And it actually mentions Seventh-day Adventists. It says the following. Uh, Many Christian denominations have been influenced by Arminian views on the will of man being freed by grace prior to regeneration, notably the Baptists in the 16th century, the Methodists in the 18th century, and the Seventh-day Adventist church in the 19th century. Denominations such as the Anabaptists, beginning in 1525, the Waldensians, pre-Reformation, and other groups prior to the Reformation have also affirmed that each person may choose the contingent response of either resisting to God's grace or yielding to it. I found that very interesting. So you have here a stream of Reformation where you find, you know, the Waldensians, the Anabaptists, the Methodists, and the Baptists, and now the Seventh-day Adventists 
that are in this stream of the Reformation where they say, yeah, God is sovereign, yes, but God is also love. And, and, and if there's anything that is at the very top of the list of what God is, it is actually that He is love. And love necessitates free will, right? Love necessitates free will. Uh, love must give a choice, otherwise it cannot be love. God in the beginning created all the angels, but he didn't, he didn't create them as robots. He created them with a free will. Otherwise, love would not exist. Love would be, it would just be a programmed uh, experience. Uh, the same when God created the first human beings, he put in the middle of the Garden of Eden a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said, you cannot eat of this tree. They now were faced with a choice. And that test was necessary for love to exist. Otherwise, again, there would be no choice. So we see it from in the very story of Scripture how love necessitates a choice. And that choice is a risk, but it's a risk that is necess necessary for love to exist. So that's a little bit of background. And now we're going to try to tackle Romans chapter 9, the chapter that Calvinists will use those that believe in predestination, double predestination, they will use Romans 9, and let's see what it actually teaches and how can we find an understanding of the free will uh, in this chapter? We'll find out. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, Paul makes a little bit of a transition here. Um, we have, um, in the course of our weekend, our time together here, we've looked at uh, particularly Romans 1. We looked yesterday morning at Romans 4. Yesterday evening, we looked at Romans 8. Basically, the first eight chapters of the book of Romans is this panoramic, step-by-step -step, uh, portrayal, picture of the gospel truth, the everlasting gospel. And as he's then given us this beautiful picture, now he transitions into sharing his anxiety and sorrow for the fact that his own people, Israel, are not receiving this message. They, of all people that have been the very recipients of God's grace and have carried the oracles of truth for centuries, they have rejected this very invitation and message. So he says in verse uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. And when he says, my brethren, my countrymen, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Hebrews, the Jews. Verse 4, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So here in the, in the first few verses of chapter 9, Paul is just bearing open his heart and saying, I have really sorrow because this is the most beautiful message ever given, and yet it is not received by the ones that it was first entrusted to. Israel has rejected the gospel, at least at large. There, of course, were individuals that received it, but at large, this nation hardened their hearts to this gospel invitation. Now, that's how the chapter starts, okay? Now, we're going to make a little bit of a jump here, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter and read the last verses, because in the last verses of chapter 9, he comes back to this theme 
about Israel rejecting the gospel, and then we're going to look at everything that happens in between, this whole idea of, okay, what, what does it mean with predestination? What does it mean with the sovereignty of God uh, explained here in this chapter? But, but go to the last verses, verse 30. Romans chapter 9, reading from verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? And isn't that a kind of a question of conclusion? Like, okay, you've built a case, right? And then you say, okay, based on all that, what shall we say then? Okay, so he's, he's coming to a conclusion. What shall we say then, verse 30? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. And I want you to take notice of the key word, faith, and it's going to come back in verse 32, faith. So there are those that are experiencing God's um, mercy. Those are the Gentiles. They're experiencing His righteousness, and they're experiencing it by faith. Verse 31, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. And then he asks the question, why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by, what's the key word there again? By faith. So they did not seek it by faith, as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, verse 33, Behold, I, li I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Paul is saying that the Gentiles, they're receiving the promise, they're receiving the gospel, the righteousness of God. And how did they receive it? Encourage me now, by faith. They, re they, they, they received it by faith. But Israel was not receiving this great blessing of the gospel, at least not in large, because they did not have, what's the key word? Faith. Righteousness is by faith is a choice. Righteousness by faith is a choice. So those that originally did not receive all of these promises are now in this communion with God and this experience of the gospel because of faith. The Israelites that received all of these promises, all of these oracles, all of these revelations throughout the Old Testament are not in this experience with God because of faith that they did not have. Okay? So, so Romans chapter 9, if you look at the first verses, and you look here at the last verses, we're already seeing where this argument is heading. The argument is heading that righteousness by faith is actually a choice. God did not predestine anything, but He is actually giving His truth, and then He's looking, okay, who's going to respond to it? He wanted Israel to respond to it, but at large they didn't. Now the Gentiles are responding to it, and because of the faith response, he is able to work among them. Okay? So, so that's the framework of Romans 9. Now let's look at the actual content between these passages that we've just read. Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 6. And I'm going to admit right up front here before we get into this stuff that these are difficult passages. If there are some passages in the Bible that are, that, that, that are maybe most complex to understand, I think Romans 9 would be in the top five. Uh, the, these are not easy passages to understand. These are truths that we need to examine closely in order to come away with a right understanding of what God is saying. But in the context of what we've already seen, in the framework of Romans 9, I think we're, we're seeing a little bit where this is heading. Okay, verse 6. 
I'm going to read verse, yeah, I'll just read from verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And, and that's actually a good, good news. So, so even though, you know, we, we have Israel at large rejecting it, there, there are also some that are actually receiving this message, this gospel truth. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, in those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, verse 9. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So he's actually referring here to remember how there was the promised son. We talked a little bit about this yesterday morning. The promised son was Isaac, but there was also another son, remember? Who was that? Ishmael. So, but then uh, Paul is saying, but, but God had a plan, and God's plan will always succeed. This is, by the way, a theme that runs through Romans 9. Very interesting. Whenever man takes a detour and man makes another, goes another way, Romans 9 is saying that God is so sovereign God is so in control that even though we choose another way, in the end, God's will is going to happen no matter what. And, and this comes already through in the passages we read in the beginning and the end regarding Israel. Even though Israel says, oh, I reject, uh, I reject this truth, God is not like, oh, I have a problem here. No, what happens is now the Gentiles receive it and are running with it. So even though it is sad that the Israel rejected God, God in the end, his plan still comes to pass in that the Gentiles now have received the gospel. The same here. God has a plan for Abraham and Sarah to have a child together, which is Isaac, but there's a little detour because they make their own choices and there's a little detour. Ishmael is born. Out of Ishmael comes a great nation. But God is saying that in the end, he's sovereign. His plan is going to stand no matter what man chooses. Look at what it says in verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also has conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I, hate, I have hated. Now, what it's referring to here, Paul is referring to how God has a purpose and a plan. And he had, uh, when, when uh, Rebecca was pregnant, she had, remember, she had twins. And those twins were Jacob and Esau. Now, Paul, on a number of occasions in Romans chapter 9, is quoting the Old Testament. And verse 12 is a quotation from the Old Testament. And he says, the older shall serve the younger. This is taken from, if you go back, this is actually taken from verse Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23. Okay, so it's a direct quotation from the Old Testament. The older shall serve the younger. And when they were born, those twins, who came out first? Esau, right? Who came out second? Jacob. But what did Jacob do? He grabbed his heel, right? That's why he was called the supplanter, uh, the name Jacob, deceiver. Um, and yet, the, the younger, he was the younger, and yet God had already purposed 
that he would be the descendant. He would carry on the lineage, okay? So this was predetermined. This was predestined. This is where we can use the word predestination. God is sovereign. He predestined that the younger was going to serve uh, the older, that, that Jacob was the chosen one here. Just like it was Isaac that was chosen. It wasn't Ishmael that was chosen. It was Isaac that was chosen. Here, it is Jacob that is chosen. It's not, it's not Esau that is chosen. It's Jacob, okay? Now, does this take away the fact that God has something against Ishmael or God has something uh, against Esau? Well, no. Actually, the Bible shows us that when um, Hagar and Ishmael left, because remember, eventually they had to leave because of all the uh, strife that existed between these two sons, did God add his blessing upon Hagar and Ishmael, or did they just die there in the wilderness when they left? Blessing. God said, you know, you will, there will be an abundance of a people that will come out of you, and that has happened, all right? So, so God added his, his blessing there. In the same way, if Esau had decided to be truthful, to follow the ways of the Lord, would God have blessed him? Would God have blessed him? Yes. So, so God did not from the very beginning just say, okay, I have something against you, Esau, and, and I'm going to make your life very miserable. No, he had the same opportunities of Jacob to receive the message that God had given. Now, would he be the, the one that would carry on the lineage? No. God had already determined that's going to be Jacob. But could he live a life in accordance with the will and way of God and, and leave, live peaceably after the law of God? Yes. Yes. Actually, it's very interesting. Verse 13 is also a quotation from the Old Testament. Look at Romans 9, verse 13. It says, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That is a verse that does not come from Genesis. And this is very important. I was just thinking about this this morning. Like, this, this does not go back to Genesis. Does anyone know where this actually, this verse comes from? Malachi. Now, okay, Malachi, Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. When did Malachi live? Approximately how many years before uh, Christ? About 400 years, okay? So we are here long, 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 long after Esau and Jacob's history in Genesis. We're like many, 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 many years later, okay? So this is not a declaration at the outset of Esau's life. It's not like Esau was born and God says, I love Jacob, but I hate you. No, this was not a quotation that goes back to Genesis. This is in Malachi, which came way, way later. And Malachi, reflecting upon the past and the things that have happened, is referring to the fact that Esau made a bad decision, many bad decisions. His lineage made many bad decisions. And actually, the thing that God hates here is the sin and the wickedness that came from Esau and his lineage. And actually, if you go back, and we don't have time to cover that now, but go back and read Malachi chapter 1, and you'll find out what God actually hates. He talks there about the Esau and the Edomites and the wickedness that came out of that nation. That is what God hates. That is what God here is opposed against. We must look at this always in the context of the story and where Paul is getting his, where, where he's quoting from. Okay, let's move on. We have a lot to cover here. Verse 14. What shall we say then? 
Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, look at this, verse 16. It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So those in proponents of predestination, double predestination, they'll say, yeah, look, look, the text is very clear. It's not about who wills. It's not about the will of man or the freedom of man. It's just about what God decides. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion, and also vice versa. He, he brings judgment upon those he wants to bring judgment. He hardened those that he wants to harden. That's what the text says. But again, this is a quotation from the Old Testament. And this is so fascinating because in this chapter, Paul again and again and again is, is bringing up quotations from the Old Testament. And what we need to do then is go back to the Old Testament and see what it's actually talking about. So what is it actually talking about? Does anyone know where this text comes from? Romans 9.15, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Where is that taken from? Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. Now, now take notice that in Exodus, this text is coming. So this is Exodus chapter 33. And Exodus chapter 33, verse 19, of course, this is coming after Exodus chapter 32. Now, without going there or looking there, does anyone know what happens in Exodus 32? The golden calf. The golden calf. So, Israel decides to make this golden calf while Moses is on the mountain, and they are worshiping this golden calf. And then Moses comes down, and so, and then we have the, the aftermath of this, this false worship scenario. And then in Exodus chapter 33, after uh, Moses has pleaded for his people, then God says, I, 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 I can have mercy, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy, and have compassion on whoever I have compassion. God decides to have mercy and compassion on the people of Israel that went astray and were worshiping a golden calf. It was a decision of God to have compassion, to have mercy. And, 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 and this is really what it's talking about here, that, that even though Israel was rejecting God, God didn't immediately reject them. God is working on them. Remember, that's the overall theme of Romans 9. In the beginning, Paul starts with, oh, I have so much sorrow because of what has happened to Israel. And now he's actually showing how God has been at work in Israel. And even when Israel decided an opposite way, God was sending another prophet and another prophet and another message. And he was having compassion and more compassion and more mercy. Till the point where, of course, they crucified his son. Even then he had mercy because he said to his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait there. And then they received the Holy Spirit and Pentecost happened. But then it came to the point where they stoned Stephen and the prophecy of Daniel 9, the 70 weeks came to an end in AD 34. And then the message went largely to the Gentile world. But here, Paul is showing how God again and again and again had compassion and mercy upon his people. 
Now take notice of the next passage, verse 17. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And so here again a text that is perhaps on first glance difficult to understand. We have, the Pharaoh, we have Pharaoh, and the text seems to say that God arbitrarily separate from Pharaoh's decisions, just said, okay, Pharaoh, I'm going to use you for one purpose. You are born for one purpose. I'm going to actively harden your heart so that when all this happens, I'm, I'm going to be able to show my glory and my power here by pouring out my plagues, and, and you're going to resist me, but eventually I'm going to win. But, but this, is your, this is your little task in this drama, in this play. So, so here we go. I harden your heart, and, and now let everything unfold. But is that the way God works? Is that the way God functions, that He just arbitrarily decides to harden someone's heart? Well, we have to go to other passages in the Bible and compare uh, with this. Uh, for example, I'm just going to, uh, you can write this down if you want, Ezekiel 33 verse 11, God says the following, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. How much pleasure? No pleasure. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And it doesn't say except Pharaoh. It doesn't say that. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life except Pharaoh. Is that what it says? No, there is no except Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have made a decision for God and be saved. Of course. God so loved the world. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So what is happening here? What are we actually reading about here? Pharaoh has been raised up. It's God's, uh, the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that, the name, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Remember that God, even though mankind makes decisions opposing his will, in the end, God is sovereign and his will always comes to pass. This is the marvelous story of all of Scripture. So what we're seeing here is that God had a purpose to set his people free. Pharaoh um, stood in the way of that purpose. Pharaoh hardened his heart because he said, no, I'm not going to let them go. And so what God does is he's going to still be glorified, but now he is face-to-face -face with a person that has a free will, a decision, and the free will of Pharaoh is saying, no, I'm not going to let the people go. And so what God does is through this circumstance, he makes his glory and power known. The ten plagues fall, marvelous manifestations of God's power and glory. The, the Red Sea has to open up, uh, and all of these things are happening in order because there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a man that has resisted God's will, but the glory of God is being manifested, and His will is still taking place. You see, how can we, how do we understand the phrase, God hardened Pharaoh's heart? The way, the way I've come to understand this is quite simple. If God had not sent Moses to deliver the Hebrews, Pharaoh's heart would not have been further hardened because he was not um, facing a decision. But the fact that 
Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Now Pharaoh is, is having to make a decision based on that. Am I going to do that or not? Because he decides not to do that, his heart is hardened. So in that respect, God has hardened his heart through this decision that has been brought before him. Do you see that? In this way, we can say God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Just like we could say that God hardens your heart when he reveals his Holy Spirit to you and he convicts you of sin and he convicts you of something specific in your life that you need to surrender. If you do not surrender that, then in effect, indirectly, God has hardened your heart because he has confronted you with your sin. Are you with me? Uh, this is, is the type of, of picture that is emerging here in Romans chapter 9. Okay, let's continue. Verse 19. You will say to me then, who, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make a vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with, with much uh, long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Again, on first appearance, quite a difficult text. You say, okay, so... God presents himself as the potter, and the text seems to say that arbitrarily God just, you know, he makes here a vessel. Okay, this is going to be, let me see, this is going to be a vessel of glory. This is going to be a great testimony for me. But in order for me to have a great testimony, I also need to have a vessel that is kind of opposing this so that this becomes even, that looks even better. And so, okay, I'll go over here, and now I'll make a vessel of dishonor. Okay, so, so that's what the text maybe seems to say at first glance. The picture of a potter at work, God is the potter, we are the clay. This is a scenario that we find one other place in Scripture, which we'll go to in just a moment. God is the potter, we are the clay, and he, and he just makes vessels, and some of those vessels are vessels of, of glory, and other are vessels of, um, what does it say? What's the word that is used? Dishonor. Some for honor, some for dishonor. You know, I, I must say that this is probably the portion that I struggled most with in Romans 9. I was like, oh, Lord, what is this actually saying? And then the Lord brought it on a text to my mind, which brought amazing clarity, at least for me, and I hope it does for you as well. You see, this is a text that talks about God as potter and we as mankind as clay, which is a, a marvelous picture, actually. God wants to shape us in his image. Now, Romans 9 talks about about that, there is one other passage in the Scriptures that talks about God as a potter and mankind as clay. Now, where is that found? Does anyone know? Students should know because we dealt with that in class just a few days ago. Where is it? Sorry? Uh, it, is, it is in, uh, not in Isaiah, but in Jeremiah. Which, which chapter? 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. Now, turn with me to Jeremiah 18. And let's compare these two passages. We've just read the one in um, Romans 9. God is the potter, we're the clay. He makes vessels, some of honor and some of dishonor. What does that mean? Let's compare it with Jeremiah chapter 18 and beginning in verse 1. 
because I think the passage of Jeremiah is going to shed light on the passage in uh, Romans 9 regarding how this works with God being the potter and we being the clay. Okay, I'll begin in verse, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house. There I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Now let me just pause there for a moment. This is so wonderful. God is saying to Jeremiah, I need to tell you something about the relationship that I have to, 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 to you and to the people of God. I want you, words are not enough this time. I want you to go down to the potter's house. And so he goes down to the potter's house. He needs a visual image to go along with the words that God is going to speak to him. And as he's watching the potter at work, the potter is at work with this clay, but the clay is not cooperating. It says the clay was what? Marred in the hand of the potter. And what does it say? Does it say that the potter just throws it away and gets some other clay? What does the passage say? He, look, look what it says. There, um, so, he see, so he made it again into another vessel, the same clay. So, so God in his mercy is continuing to work with this uncooperated clay. Sound familiar? Are you sometimes uncooperated clay in the hands of a potter? Is God some tra sometimes trying to mold you, but you're not always immediately responding to that molding? and that forming and that fashioning process? And, and God, does he just say, oh, sorry, I think this was just a vessel of dishonor. No, he wants to make you a vessel of honor. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. A little bit more enthusiasm? <laughs> I hope you're happy about that. Now look at how it continues here. Look at verse 5. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, Cannot I do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, the next passage, verse 7 to 11, is incredible because here he's talking about how this functions. How does it function when God is our potter and we are the clay? What, how, how, what is the relationship with us? Where does free will play into the picture of the analogy with potter and clay? Now, look at verse 7. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, to pull it down, and to destroy it, if, that's a key word, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, what will God do? I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Wow. So God is saying if a nation is in an evil path, but they make a choice Righteousness by faith is a choice. If they turn around and make a choice for me, I will relent from the evil that I thought to bring upon that nation. Uh, the passage is basically saying this. God can change his mind. God changes his mind. I mean, he, had, he, he thought one thing, but now he thinks differently based upon our free will exercise of, of um, uh, answering concerning the messages that he is giving us. Now, let's continue to read because this works also the other way around. Verse 8, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Verse 9, and the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. 
Now therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. God is saying, and especially in the days of Jeremiah, God's people were on a downward path. They were on a downward path. Things were getting more and more and more wicked. They were coming more and more away from God's devised plan. And God is saying, you know what? Um, if, this is the, if this is the course that you're going to continue, then, then there's going to be consequences. There are going to be consequences. You see, what Jeremiah 18 tells me in this passage is that God, based on our actions, is responding to those actions. He did not from the beginning just make a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor, and it's all predestined, predetermined, and there's no free will, and there's, there's, there's no choice. No, the, the, the very passage here about the potter and the clay reveals that there is a choice involved. There's a free will involved. A nation can be heading in a good direction, but if they then turn to become evil ways, then God's attitude towards that is also going to change. Or a, a, a nation can be, going, be on, a, on a downhill path, but if they turn away and they turn to the Lord, then God's actions are also going to change towards that people. God gives us a free will, and that free will is to be exercised, and that free will can only be exercised when we exercise spiritual discernment. We need spiritual discernment. Now go back to Romans chapter 9. I hope that there's a picture that is, you know, emerging as we're studying this, this chapter you see, again, from the beginning, Paul says, you know, I, I have a burden for my people Israel because my people Israel that received all these blessings from God, they have turned away from him. And then, and then in the end of the chapter, he says, but, you know, the Gentiles that had nothing, no revelation of God, have now received this revelation of God, and they did it by faith. So, so the whole chapter is really about what is our response of faith. But then between these two, these two passages about Israel, he brings other passages and other stories into it, showing that even though mankind chooses a different way, that God's purpose overrules. His, his plan was, will always succeed. And so we have the story of, 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 of Isaac that, you know, um, had uh, two children, or rather Abram that had two children, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, it seemed to be a wrong choice, and it was a wrong choice, but in the end, God's plan succeeded. And then you have uh, Jacob and Esau. After all expectations, Esau would be with the one that would get the birthright and carry on the lineage. But God had a plan and a purpose, and it overruled the plan and purpose of man. And then you have the story of, of uh, Moses and, and the people there in the wilderness. It seemed that everything was over when they worshipped that golden calf, but, but God had mercy. God's plan succeeded. And then you have the story of uh, Pharaoh. It seemed that Pharaoh was going to oppose this plan of God and that it could not succeed, but then God said, okay, though you oppose me, I will show my glory through you, and God's plan succeeded. Amen? God's plan always succeeds, and therefore, He will always be the potter, and we will always be the clay. You can't reverse that picture. You can't say, okay, we'll be the potter. We'll decide how the outcome is of… No. The outcome is already decided. God is sovereign, but we have a free will. We have a free will to exercise in that we receive those revelations of God. Our response to that is also, again, going to affect the way that God further relates to us. Righteousness by faith is a choice. Now, let's go to 
some of these last verses in this chapter then. Let's go to verse 24. Even us, whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as it says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have been made like Gomorrah. Here again, he's quoting Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament. And what he's showing is, again, there's a choice. There's a choice. There's a choice. Those that were called the people of God sadly have turned away because of a choice. But those that were not called by God in the beginning, the Gentiles, they are now becoming the people of God because of a choice. They are, they are coming to receive this glorious message of the power of the gospel. And then we come back to the verses that we already read, verse 30 to 33. But let's read it one more time as we close. What shall we say then? What's the conclusion of all of this? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. And by the way, that's talking about you. Are there any Jews here this morning? Anyone of Jewish ascendants? No. We're all the Gentiles, right? How do we come into this message? By faith. Faith in the righteousness of God. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith. Faith makes all the difference. But as it were, by the works of the law... For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. My friends, I hope that there's no stumbling block in your life. I hope that there's no stumbling block that is keeping you from exercising faith in the righteousness of God. And if there is a stumbling block, then I pray that the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel may remove it that you may make choices every day to remove those stumbling blocks and to settle yourself upon that rock, Jesus Christ. You know, righteousness by faith is a choice, but it's not just a choice that we make one time in our lifetime. Righteousness by faith is a daily choice. When you wake up in the morning, you have a lot of choices to make. You have a choices to make is what you're going to wear, where you're going to go that day, who you're going to hang out with, you know, you have a lot of choices. What kind of socks to put on? What kind of color? You know, what jacket? What, you, you have lots of choices. But the one choice that matters most is this choice, righteousness by faith. And if that choice is made correctly, then all other choices that we make regarding, you know, what are we studying and who are we going to uh, marry and where are we going to live and, and what, is gonna be the, you know, what am I going to be doing um, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, those choices are then going to grow out of that one choice. That one choice of righteousness by faith, trusting in God's righteousness, trusting in God's promises, are going to then affect all the other choices that we have. You see, Free will 
is the most amazing gift that God has ever given to us. It is the gift of choice. But free will, separate from spiritual discernment and a guidance of God, is absolutely catastrophic. Catastrophic. And that's what we see in our world today, right? Uh, free will has led to the most grievous sins. Free will is both beautiful but also incredibly risky. So free will is a beautiful thing, but it's only beautiful if it is, if it is molded and guided by the potter. Amen? So I have this amazing gift, free will, but if I'm just going to exercise it by myself, separate from a revelation of God, it's catastrophic. It's disastrous. The most grievous sins have come out of the expressions of free will. But if I'm going to take that free will and say, God, thank you for that choice, and now I pray that I may be clay in your hands. You're the potter. Mold me, fashion me, make me in your image. Help my choices to glorify you. Help me to choose for righteousness by faith every single day. May every choice that I make glory, and may it bring glory and honor to your name. May I grow in an understanding of what that is. And, and we grow in an understanding of God's will by spending time with his word. Amen? Spend time in his word. Spend time in the spirit of prophecy. It is here that we have a revelation of God's will. It is here that God can mold us. Because when I'm studying this book, and I'm studying the writings of Ellen White, the spirit of prophecy, and the scriptures, what is happening is that God is able to mold me. By beholding, we become changed. It's like the potter is at work. Let him do his perfect work in you. Exercise your free will. Pray for spiritual discernment. And let nothing be a stumbling block between you and your Savior. Amen? How many of you want to say this, this, this morning... You say, you know what? I want to be potter in the hands of God. I want to be that clay that is moldable. I want to be clay that he can actually form and shape. I don't want to resist his work in me. Don't be that marred clay. Be that pliable clay that God can mold as he sees fit. And we do so by humbly and respectfully coming to Scripture and saying, God, reveal yourself to me and help me to receive that revelation. I hope this made sense. Did this make sense, Romans 9? Yeah? All right. I hope you can go back and study it more. It's a fascinating chapter, a chapter that maybe on first glance seems to uh, teach very clearly predestination. I believe that rightly understood actually shows a beautiful balance in how God gives us free will. That doesn't mean that God does not, is not sovereign. He's surely sovereign, but he's given us an incredible gift for us to exercise, and that is a choice, and righteousness by faith comes when we choose for him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, uh, we want to thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we could study Romans chapter 9. And thank you, Lord, that um, you have given us a choice. We have the opportunity to, to put our faith in you. And I pray that that choice of, of responding to your grace, responding to your mercy, in putting our faith in you, that that may result, Lord, in all of our choices, bringing glory to your name. Help us, Lord, to grow and to understand your will for our lives. And may all stumbling blocks be removed so that we can experience you on a deeper level and be prepared for your soon coming. We thank and we praise you for all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. 
If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.